Hello, I'm Nance Haxton, and this is the Griffith University podcast, A Middle Ground. A Middle Ground provides independent analysis by Australia's best political scientists and policy researchers. In this episode, we examine press freedom in Australia and how recent raids by the Australian Federal Police on journalists are raising questions about whether the separation of state, police and judiciary is under threat. Those raids were the latest in a series of trends that have made internationally renowned journalists such as Peter Grester increasingly uneasy. Clearly, Australia is not Egypt and not about to become Egypt anytime soon. But, and there is a but here, if you think about what happened to us in the abstract, where the government used national security legislation and framed it so loosely that it could be interpreted in a way that criminalised what would normally have been considered as legitimate journalism, then we're seeing actually the same kinds of trends taking place here in Australia. Ever since 9-11, Australia has passed more than 70 pieces of national security legislation, more than any other country on earth. And a lot of those are so loosely drawn that they criminalise legitimate journalism. And this is not an abstract idea, you know. When we saw those raids by the Australian Federal Police on uh, News Corp and ABC journalists, I realised that that this this was always going to be coming. I've got another researcher at the School of Communications and Arts looking at the way the experience, the lived experience of journalists and the way that their work is becoming ever more constrained by national security legislation. We could see that coming. And so even though Australia and Egypt are two very different places, the political trends, the political imperatives which are driving an increasing security state and in the process limiting press freedom, limiting journalistic freedom, limiting freedom of speech and civil liberties are the same. The same imperatives are there. And and so understanding that has actually made me feel quite concerned. In June, the Australian Federal Police raided News Corp reporter Annika Smithhurst and ABC journalists Dan Oakes and Sam Clark, triggering a major debate over press freedom. At that time, I started a new podcast called The Journo Project, which quickly became an important outlet for journalists to raise their concerns about why media freedom in Australia shouldn't be taken for granted. Journalists such as last year is Gold Walkley winner and renowned investigative reporter Hedley Thomas, creator of the phenomenally successful podcast The Teacher's Pet that has been downloaded more than 50 million times around the world. We met at the Brookfield Cafe where he wrote many of his podcast scripts. He says we should all be concerned about the implications of the AFP raids on ABC and News Limited journalists. My view is that it was significantly about intimidating would-be whistleblowers who will be seeing the very public spectacle of police going in en masse to the offices of the, um, the national public broadcaster and into the home of one of my colleagues at News Corp. And the coverage of that, you know, has a chilling effect on people who know that bad things are happening or being covered up that need to be highlighted in the media, why would they be confident to exercise their their moral judgment 
and and do what they would believe to be a necessary thing, albeit under public service rules, possibly an unlawful thing, and leaking. They would be terrified by this. And that is the, I believe, major motive. It was over the top. It, it was, um, I think, a, a very concerning spectacle. And the timing just after the election, please. I mean, <laughs> seriously, given the length of these cases, mm. how that could be just coincidence and, 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 and not related to the election. No, I'm sorry, I don't buy that. Three decades after the Four Corners expose The Moonlight State by Chris Masters, the revelations of which brought down a Premier and ultimately the Queensland Government, I wonder whether anti-terrorism laws and a growing acceptance of surveillance as the norm could take us back to those dark days. Eight-time Walkley Award winner Adele Ferguson told me on the Journo project how she is concerned by these recent developments and says whistleblowers deserve more protection in Australian society. It's chilling, you know, two weeks after the federal election, you have, you know, in consecutive days, two different media organisations getting raided. Yeah, it's frightening because it just has a chilling effect on whistleblowers speaking up. You know, and the impact on the journalists and the organisation, it's just horrendous. How do you think we... Um fight back from that to, to highlight what media freedom means for this country and, and for for higher ideals, for democracy? For I, th I think what we're doing, we, ha we have to campaign. Uh, I think having the three CEOs on the panel at the, uh, the National Press Club a few weeks ago backing independent journalism and whistleblowers and press freedom was a really good start because when... Different media organisations unite. Politicians get very worried. You know, the laws do not protect whistleblowers. It's just shocking. In America, they have a whistleblower day. Um, they get rewards. And celebrated. Yeah, mm -hmm. they're protected here. They're seen as snitches and troublemakers, and they're punished. Griffith University media and culture professor Julianne Schultz is the publisher of Griffith Review. She says press freedoms have been slowly eroded for some time and need to be wound back for the good of society. The, the question of the freedom of the press and what we expect it to do and deliver in a democratic system has become much sharper focus than it's been for a long time. Was it really when those AFP raids on News Limited and ABC journalists, did that really sharpen the focus or has there been other events that have led up to this point where we are now? Oh, I think it's been building for a long time. What we've seen since 9-11 has been a rapid increase in surveillance and security legislation. So Australia has some of the most extensive security and surveillance legislation in the world. Um, there, is, there is an extraordinary suite of legislative reforms and, and prohibitions and so on that have been introduced. Um, and I can understand that from a national security perspective, and if you're sitting in ASIO or ASIS or, you know, Defence Signals Intelligence or any of those sorts of units in, in Canberra, you see the extent of the possible threat and you want to make sure that your country and people are safe. I think, though, that what's happened is that this legislation has been much, much more extensive than anyone really 
than probably what we've needed. I mean, it's hard to judge from the outside. But it's also set up then a climate in which this is the norm, that the norm is to surveil, the norm is to intrude, the norm is to not accept the sort of the more laissez-faire, you know, um, process of, of exposure and information and, you know, sunlight is a disinfectant, all that sort of stuff, to not allow that to happen in the way that we'd become accustomed. And why do you think that is? Is this partly because of the legislative framework of media freedom in Australia as well, that we don't have so those guarantees? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, well, it's not just media freedom. I mean, the fact that we don't have a constitutional bill of rights um, is at the core of this. I mean, our our acceptance of the freedom of, of freedom of political speech in the media is an implied acceptance. It's something which the High Court only ruled on in the 1980s. It is not something which is long-standing. It's not been there since the beginning of the Federation. It's something which was ta- was in, read into the Constitution by the High Court in, in the mid-1980s. So while everyone walks around now saying, "Oh yes, yes, we've got a democratic right, we've got a you know constitutional right to this," actually, it's very flimsy. You know, while you're dependent on one High Court ruling and then the ones that have followed it to establish that principle, it's not robust. Um, And so it makes it much easier for a state which is concerned about external threats to just slowly accrete more and more power. And I think that that's what what we've seen um, over this last little while. What we're seeing now is a fundamental unpicking of many of the rights that we have taken for granted over a long period of time. I mean, I noticed that, you know, when you put it into a sort of Queensland context, those of us who experienced Queensland during the Joe years grew up with the understanding of how a sort of authoritarian state, I mean it wasn't a draconianly authoritarian state, but it was an authoritarian state where where the barriers between the, between the politics, the police and the judiciary were collapsed and the media was actively caught up in that. I mean there were points of opposition for many, many years and so there was a big pushback against that. You know, there was a lot of effort to try and reassert the right of the parliament, to make sure that the parliament was independent of the, you know, of the, of the government of the day, to make sure that the police and the judiciary, you know, had proper oversight, to give a bit of space to, for, for journalism and the media to do what they should be doing. So that was a big pushback that took a long time. I think what we're seeing now is the, the collapsing of those barriers um, and partly it's happening through the national security legislation. Um, partly it's happening because we've entered into an era that I am persuaded by is a sort of a, a new form of surveillance capitalism. That what we're starting to see is the degree of surveillance that is possible through digital and social media is in every bit of your life. And so while the commercial sectors are doing that through Google and Facebook and everything else that knows, you know, everything about you that you don't even know yourself in some ways, it becomes a much easier cover for a state to do that as well. So it's not surprising to me that, for instance, in the in the Senate in, uh, hearings the other day, we hear that the, Telstra saying that there are hundreds of government organisations which are accessing the metadata that Telstra is collecting because the government has mandated that metadata be held for a, for a period. They're man- collecting, they're asking for that data to solve little administrative problems. So that separation that we've become accustomed to as part of a rights regime has is, a, is being eroded. So that's happening in a commercial space and it's happening in a political space. That the journalism gets pulled into it is to be expected because that's going to be a, that's going to be the point where that intersection happens. So how should we respond? What do we do from here? Well, I think that these um, I think that these um, the, the the legal actions are important, and I think 
organising on the ground to start arguing about what are the rights that we as citizens actually want going into the 21st century. We haven't even adopted the Bill of Rights that was developed after the Second World War, you know, so 70 odd years ago, although Australia was one of the founding, you know, founding people, organ countries organ arguing for that International Declaration of Human Rights. We've not adopted that, we've adopted various protocols, but we've not adopted the core thing. I think that now we need to be thinking, well, what are the rights that we would need to have in a 21st century? You know, where, where you've got this digital realm of information, where it's possible to know so much more than we ever knew, where, where an algorithmic machine learning system changes the way, the way things are done without us even being able to read the language in which they're done. You know, so we're facing a profoundly different time and the tools that we've had in the past have been eroded and actually they're probably not sufficient to address the problems of the future. Is there room to address some of those constitutional issues as well? Oh, well, absolutely. I think that's what you do. I mean, now, you know, there are people who are, at, who are reviving this argument. And so I think that the journalists, rather than hoping something is going to get fixed up as a bit of a deal, which is the history of the way media stuff gets done, it's a bit of a deal, you know, really need to be prepared to make a much bigger structural argument. Now, that's not going to solve the immediate problem, but it is, it is something to keep in mind. I think that in the meantime, those legal actions that are being planned, the activism by the media companies is important. I think that, that, um, that in one way, the, the sharpest moment of that whole experience to my mind was was that John Lyons sat there and tweeted what was going on during that raid for the entire time for the entire time but that that he and the and the police and the technical experts who were posed for photographs i mean you know you talk about the you know the banality of authoritarianism people are posing for selfies while doing something you know i mean this is really weird and so it sort of says on one level that it's a bit of a game again if you think back to queensland in the 70s and 80s you know the focus was on police behaving badly you know on special branch surveilling without authority on tapping phones without authority without going through judicial process of people you know um, being you know being beaten up in in police watch houses you know protected by a telephone book so the bruises weren't obvious i mean it wasn't something that you were tweeting about or posing for photos, you know, so, so that it's so accepted that it becomes part of sort of life in that way, I think is, 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 an, is itself a remarkable measure of, of what the change has been. It's been strange developments, that's for sure. Yeah, I think so. Over the last decade, as we've seen the drop in the number of journalists by about a third, we've seen the collapse in the number of publications, we've seen a real contraction in this space, you know, really active contraction. The focus has been on the business model. What's the business model that's going to be appropriate? And I think a lot of journalists inadvertently got drawn into that conversation. And, it, and I mean, it was driving me mad. I mean, people who know nothing about business were pontificating about the best business model. Um, I mean, it was always a business that was done on a trade. You know, that trade required a certain independence and it required a certain profitability to maintain that independence. We have to move it from that commercial conversation to one which is about what the purpose of this is. And journalists are part of that, but so are so is everyone else. So finding the space for that conversation, I think, is the crucial, the crucial bit. Makes it hard with the Facebooks of the world, though. I suppose making it more of a business model. Oh, look, the Facebooks of the world have have have, have learnt the lesson. I mean, when the um, when the when the media companies agitated for a a removal of effective regulation 
which is what they got during the 1980s. I mean, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, if you wanted your TV licence renewed, you went and you had a hearing before the Broadcasting Tribunal. It went on for weeks. They went through everything that was broadcast, every line and thing, and it, was, it wasn't a, a foregone conclusion. It was a rigorous process. When that collapsed and the, and the regulation moved to being something that was solely done by the industry of itself, you know, perfectly reasonable commercial sort of thing to, to have happen. That social responsibility got broken. And I mean, my argument at the time that I wrote the Fourth Estate book was that journalists had to step up and take more of that responsibility. People were very resistant to do that. You know, there was a greater professionalisation of journalism. We saw all that sort of thing happening. But the really hard next bit, um, you know, that we didn't have the leaders for doing that. Um, and I think we stood by and watched an undermining of what is our best bulwark, and that is an, ex an effective independent public broadcasting system, get progressively eroded. That's the great danger, that we, if we lose that as well as all the rest of it, it's a dire space to be in. You think that is a risk? I think that the public broadcasters have been seriously weakened. I mean, the community broadcasting sector has been pretty well decimated. I mean, people get information the way that they do through, you know, sharing and, you know, all the other sort of mechanisms. But I think that, that what we uniquely... Well, uniquely, because Australia's situation was different to the British, where the BBC was so dominant that it was, you know, it was the, it was the media and everything all spun off it. In Australia, we had a very finely balanced public-private sector thing. As the private sector has got weaker, so has the public sector. And, and partly the private sector has argued that the, the public sector gets weaker because they didn't want the, the public broadcasters to get relatively stronger. But I think that that's it's a really serious worry and it needs more money, it needs more commitment, it needs um, a restatement of why, why that's really important um, for the nation. I met Peter Grester at a cafe at the University of Queensland near his new office as UNESCO Chair in Journalism and Communications and Director of the Alliance for Journalists' Freedom. He's concerned about the implications of the AFP raids on media freedom in Australia. And if we ask Australians, hands up those of you who would feel perfectly comfortable without a free press, who think that all we need to run our democracy, all we need about for information about what takes place inside government are the Facebook posts and Twitter feeds of our politicians and senior civil servants. If, hands up, you know, who is comfortable with that idea? And I don't think you'd see too many hands either. I think most people would understand that even though the media works imperfectly, even though they don't trust us a lot of the time, and for reasons that I completely understand, the alternative is a good deal worse. And that's what we need to argue for. We need to recognise the importance of news as a public good. We need to understand and remember why it matters to our democracy. And so what we need to be thinking about is what we need from our journalism. We need to think about what our journalism has to provide in a functioning democracy. And if we can agree on that, and I'd actually reckon that most people would would have a fairly common understanding about what good journalism should look like. So I think we'll, we'll come closer to a kind of conversation that we need to have to, to deliver good journalism and, so, and journalism that, that is sustainable over the long term. Trent Dalton spoke to me from his office underneath his house where he is writing his second book. His respect for journalism is profound and he wants others in society to better understand its importance. It's that terrifying notion, that Orwellian notion that gets back to those fundamental reasons why Steinbeck wrote and why Orwell wrote is they were going for truth and these 
raids stand at the heart of truth, right? And it's mm-hmm. like, I mean, I'm talking big picture, mm-hmm. philosophical, what is at the heart of this? It is, there is a truth that they are trying to get at and we are trying to get out. And they, they are trying to hide it and we are trying to get at it. You know, when you think about the things that people have died for in the name of journalism, you know what I mean? While Channel 10 political editor and ABC Radio National presenter Hugh Rimmington says it is clear that AFP raids were intended to intimidate not just journalists, but whistleblowers as well. There's no doubt that these were intended to intimidate. Their whole purpose is to intimidate. Uh, the media is the secondary purpose. Uh, The primary purpose is to intimidate whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. And what we have to understand here is that we have a situation where people who find information out that is really damaging to our fellow citizens, if they blow the whistle on it, they get punished. They might use the media to get it out, but they get punished. There are court cases at the moment where people are facing long periods of time in jail, tax officer who revealed appalling practices within the tax Mm. office is now facing 160 years potentially in jail and having gone public with it they've had to change the way the tax office works he did a good thing for the country and he risks going to jail Uh, you know there are other cases that that are going on like this and and we should all be worried about that the surveillance state the bully state we all have to stand against the bully state because all this nonsense that it's about, oh, you know, it's going to risk lives if people break these secret secrets. But none of these cases are their lives at risk. None. Um, all of these things are things that are in the public interest to know how our government works and that they've got a mechanism in place that will jail people for years for doing good things for the country and then harass and intimidate journalists, of course, um, you know, we're big enough and ugly enough to take it and we can speak back. But everyone should be aware that, that when people in good faith find out things that are wrong about the way things are operating, um, they have to be allowed to speak that up for the good of the country and not face going to jail at the behest of some really unattractive bullies that we've allowed to take positions of power in this country. Griffith University Professor of Journalism and Social Media Mark Pearson specialises in media law. He says journalists are increasingly having to use older style techniques to protect sources in this digital age. As far as technology and surveillance goes, I think it's important that they understand that technology can be a risk and metadata laws mean that uh, really if you take your phone with you on a job, that you're making initial contact with a source uh, on a sensitive issue, that all of this metadata is sitting there and can be accessed by government agencies. So uh, journalists need to be conscious of their phone and what might be being tracked without their knowledge. Yeah, and I've heard some journalists, some investigative journalists say that when someone from a bank, a government department or someone, something rings them up and says, look, I've got a really hot story that it would have to be confidential, uh, the journalist says, well, you're going to have to tell that to somebody else because... We're already in contact as far as technology goes, so I urge you to talk to somebody else about it and do it in an analogue kind of way. 
goodness. So um, also the the AFP raids, the Australian Federal Police raids recently, does that really bring into focus as well these issues of the impact on media freedoms and being able to source stories? If, if we've got the Australian Federal Police raiding News Limited journalists and ABC journalists, what does that really mean for Australian journalism? Yeah, well, it, it's. I think what it means is what it has meant for some time. So while um, this has been regrettable, uh, it, it is not absolutely new. Uh, there were raids on the ABC only in Brisbane only in the last couple of years to do with a state cabinet documents matter. And over the various editions of my textbook, uh, it's up, up to six editions now, I took a look back recently and realised that the first edition back in 1997 had barely a mention of national security law because there really wasn't that much. Obviously, there were sedition and treason laws and things that went back centuries. But after 9-11, uh, since then, we've had something more than 60, I think now more than 70 national security laws, many of which impinge upon journalists' work. So now I have a whole chapter on national security and discrimination laws, half of which is, you know, something 20 or 30 pages of all different national security laws that journalists need to be aware of. So the AFP raids were, uh, it was surprising, I suppose, the, the boldness of it. Uh, it was surprising the timing of it, but, but some people I think have read a lot into the timing and I'm not sure all the evidence is there yet to do with the actual timing, but, you know, we'll wait and see what comes out there. But I think from 04, 05, I was recording occasional raids on journalists over their work. I re recall one on Philip Dawling at, um, in Canberra at one stage, uh, one on um, the National Indigenous Times office at one stage, to do all to do with sources and confidential information. So it's not new, but it is concerning, and it's uh, even more concerning because of all of the new powers. So. It's one thing to have the power to raid a premises. It's quite another to also have the power to access the telco's metadata as well. And you start to get these powers coming into alignment, which really make both journalists and their sources much, you know, much more wary of entering into that relationship. Does it really blur that line between state, the powers, police, the government, the judiciary? Does it have the potential to do that? Oh, very much so. And I've recently helped the Journalism Education and Research Association do their submission to the parliamentary inquiry, uh, the, the committee looking into this. And um, I pointed out that that separation of powers was only uh, the problems within that were only exposed in Queensland a couple of decades ago with good old fashioned investigative journalism by the ABC and the Korea Mail. Uh, interestingly, the two organisations that have been just raided in recent times, News Corp and um, and, uh, and the ABC. Um, but it was top public interest journalism that got that commission. 
the Fitzgerald inquiry and scores of other royal commissions and parliamentary inquiries have been triggered by this very kind of public interest journalism, usually using some level of confidential sources. And what is democracy going to lose? I mean, in Queensland, in that situation, we had the police commissioner, uh, some members of cabinet um, and various other officials and criminals jailed. The downfall of a government, separation of powers was in tatters. And uh, it means that with these laws, the criminalising of journalism through the holding and dealing with data that we've found through this AFP situation, but we're also seeing internationally with the Assange WikiLeaks situation, it seems that in Western democracies, the, the value of fourth estate journalism has become markedly eroded. Adele Ferguson mentions that in her interview that she feels there is nowhere near enough protection for whistleblowers. Is that part of the issue as well? She mentions in the United States they have a day for whistleblowers, they they have financial compensation for them, but in Australia they're almost vilified. They are, and most of the whistleblower protection laws are nullified if the whistleblower goes through the media. The whistleblower is normally required to work through the particular government channels, whether it's a corruption commission or an ombudsman or whatever in their, in their particular jurisdiction. Um, whereas, you know, investigative journalists, uh, uh, almost uh, without, without exception, are actually independent of those agencies. So a whistleblower can actually uh, trust them much more than someone from within government. With some of these stories, I mean, you can quite imagine a whistleblower being quite paranoid about who they're talking to and why, um, and, and the potential consequences from within the system. And so it's with good reason that they sometimes turn to a trusted journalist. I wonder too, Mark, if this does highlight something that perhaps the Australian public is not really uh, aware of, and that's that lack of constitutional guarantee for uh, media freedoms as well, for, for the importance of the media, again, in contrast with the United States. Is that something that also should be publicised a bit more or communicated more or looked at? Uh, yes, uh, it's important that the media media uh, has some fundamental protections and at the moment we only have a, a you know a very ambiguous uh, high court series of rulings that give some implied freedom to communicate on, on matters of politics and government and it's far short of a First Amendment protection that, that they had in the United States. Um, I doubt very much that any Western democracy is going to introduce a First Amendment. Uh, that was a creature of history. And what the First Amendment in the US represents is a protection for media and religion, uh, religious expression, uh, that is really not balanced by protections for many other freedoms. Whereas the normal vehicle is a Bill of Rights or, um, you know, whether that's constitutional or it's a statutory Bill of Rights, and it normally only protects free expression or the media, along with a host of competing rights, mm -hmm. things like 
privacy, um, right to reputation, mm. uh, things that might be problematic for some journalism. Right? So there's some balance there. There's, there's more balance but there. But we don't even have a Bill of Rights federally, do no, we? No, we don't. Mm. We do have it in a couple in, in, um, in the ACT in Victoria uh, at a statutory level. Uh, New Zealand has quite an effective Bill of Rights at a statutory level. Um, but uh, what I would prefer to see, and, and this was part of this submission uh, for the Journalism Education and Research Association, and it's uh, what I've also submitted to a couple of earlier government inquiries, is a national law reform initiative, as they've done with corporations law, evidence law, a whole bunch of different laws where they pull together all the states and territories, um, uh, you know, initiated by the Commonwealth government to scour through all of the laws that impinge on public interest journalism. Now, it's not just national security, or that's the one in the spotlight at the moment, but, you know, you've got a host of laws, you've got, and, and variations, inconsistencies across the states and territories, things like whether or not you can name a sexual offender and, uh, or a juvenile and uh, all of these sorts of things, um, interviewing prisoners, a host of others. It needs a federal initiative to scour through all of these and to pull the state attorney generals together and to say, look, let's get some uniformity with a solid public interest journalism exemption. Now, the exemption is normally a discretion of some sort, you know, blatant irresponsible journalism would not be exempted. And I think that's what a lot of people are concerned about, isn't it? That they think it would give the licence to the to the shonky operators. No, to, no to of, of course that shouldn't be protected. Mm. But what you get with a good shield law or, um, you know, a, a good law in, in some other areas is you get the court being given the discretion to weigh up the importance of public interest journalism and the protection of sources in this in this situation against whatever the other public interests are that are at stake. Renowned ABC investigative journalist Mark Willisey told the Journo Project how worrying recent developments are for not just journalism practice, but democracy in Australia. Well, I think we're one of the few democracies that don't have freedom of the press enshrined in some form of constitutional right or, or Bill of Rights, um, and that to me is a worry um, because politicians, even the most shrill authoritarian versions of them I think admit the press play an important role like, and again how would how would they even get their message out without a free press so um, I suppose they'd just go on Twitter and talk to their stupid followers wouldn't they but um, look I, I think it's time for this debate to happen in Australia that maybe we need to enshrine freedom and independence of the press officially in our constitution or in a bill of rights of some form. This makes me think of the Joe era and you have revisited that with the Moonlight State. Is that part of the role of journalists too, to, to remind people of history? It's something we grew up with in our era, but I wonder how many students are really aware of it wasn't that long ago that the media was really monitored and um, that, that these some of these civil rights that we have now were taken for granted. Really. That's right. And in Chris Masters, when he exposed police corruption on the Moonlight State Four Corners program in 1987, I think showed that was a greatest piece of journalism committed in this state. Um, but And it led to major change in this state, political, uh, justice, law and order. It, it really changed this state. It was really important to me to do 30 years on 
and what was worrying, we were filming in the valley one night. We spent two weeks filming in the valley, mainly at night. And of course, some nightclub guys were pissed off that we were filming across the road and you know, they had no right to worry. We were in a public place. But anyway, the police were called. So these two young constables come up to us and they go, what, what are you doing? Why are you filming? I said, I said, mate, we're doing 30 years on from the moonlight state. And this cop said, what's the moonlight state? Now this is a police officer, for Christ's sake. And I just, I explained <laughs> it to him. pretty telling. I explained it to him and I said, you're coming to hassle a film crew who's doing nothing wrong in a public place and you don't even know what the moonlight state is. I said, we, we really got a problem here. Um, <laughs> so, of course, famously, that's what happened as well in the, in the moonlight state. Originally, it was the camera crew was attacked. giving a bit of a dust-up. Yeah, they were, Ooh. you know. So, no, look, I think we can never take our freedoms for granted, and I think the media needs to keep reminding people what those freedoms are and why we need to keep fighting for them. He says investigative journalists are having to dust off some of their older methods as well as being across the latest digital technologies to better protect sources in this environment. We're very much um, conscious of fingerprints when it comes to dealing with sources. We have to, give, If we want to give sources 100% confidentiality, we have to also teach our sources what to do with their technology. So, for example, you know, the use of Signal or WhatsApp, but we're even sort of investigating better technology or more safe technology than that. But, for example, you know, you know, I, when I go to meetings with sources who I know are going to give me something, I leave my phone behind and that way if there was ever an investigation, my phone and the source's phone aren't going to be in the same spot. As Peter Grester optimistically says, despite this era of digital disruption and job cutbacks, there is hope for the future of journalism. Think about it in these terms. If, if we prioritise only those stories which are popular, then we'll only end up with the McDonald's of news. Mm -hmm. Now, we all know that if all we consume is McDonald's, we'll end up with diabetes. <laughs> and so you've got to eat your greens. You've got to have your spinach. You've got to have some, some salads and some broccoli from time to time. Sorry to have a bit of McDonald's. Just it's OK for some McDonald's from time to time. That's great. You, you know, we all love it. We all need it. You know, it's, 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 there's nothing wrong with it. But you've also got to have a balanced diet. And the same goes for our news. And that's but, what we need to argue for. And that's what we need to yeah. argue for. We need to recognise the importance of news as a public good. We need to understand and remember why it matters to our democracy. It's easy for us to get a bit depressed and grim about it all. Um, but I also think it, it's worth reminding ourselves of something really fundamental, that from the moment that humans have had the capacity to speak, We've had storytellers. We've had people, whether they're bards or, or you know, wandering minstrels or storytellers or, or journalists or whatever. We've always needed people to go out to gather stories of the world around us to help us understand and make sense of the world, to keep us up to date with what's taking place around our own little social um, social sphere. And that wraps up this episode of A Middle Ground. You can follow and subscribe to this Griffith University podcast on your podcast provider, iTunes or SoundCloud. 